all coming in. Welcome, welcome, everybody. You know, let's just do it. Let's do it. I would like to officially welcome everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Kelia Garrido, and I head up marketing events and marketing and events here at Great Data Minds. A um, little bit about Great Data Minds. If you haven't met us already, we are a collective of passionate data activists, and we are on a mission to modernize the wide world of data which as we know is always changing. Uh, so we do this in two different ways. The first is that we have our services arm. This is strategic planning, education, and the deployment of critical data projects. And then we also do content. We create content. We host great events just like the one you're gonna see today. Um, we put all of our videos and our podcasts out online. You can find us on YouTube. You can find us on any of your podcast distribution systems. Um, and we actually have some bigger news today. I know I can't see anybody's faces, but as of the time of this session today, uh, we have a big announcement that we've shared earlier this week is that uh, our acquisition to Hike2 has become official. So that's the big news, everybody. Great Data Minds has officially been acquired by Hike2. Hike2 is an innovation consultancy that is specializing in data um, digital transformation strategy, design, and implementations. And this acquisition will extend Hike2's mission by providing leader data technologies to support analytics, insights, generative AI, and machine learning. So we are so excited to have officially joined hands with Hike2. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping before we get into the conversation today. This is a webinar. So of course your cameras and mics are off, but we welcome conversation and Q&A throughout the session. As you can see, the chat is already working, so feel free to add your insights in there. We will also reserve a little bit of time at the end of the session for a more formal Q&A. So if you feel like um, holding off your question until that time, you can do so as well. Um, of course, we're gonna be recording today's session and we'll share it back with everyone. We'll get to any questions. Um, we can answer them offline if we don't have time. We do expect that um, you might be, uh, you might have a lot to say about this topic. I know people always do. So today we are here to have our next episode in our AI series, um, and I would like to do some introductions for our esteemed guests. We have the one and only Greg Burke joining us today. Greg is an expert in exploring customers' business problems and providing unique tech solutions to enable growth, customer value, and cost optimization. He is a business intelligent intelligence guru, and he's been designing data structures that enable high value business insights and outcomes. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We're so glad you're here. Um, and then we have my colleague, Connor Dunning. Connor is a client advisor in data and analytics innovation here at GDM slash now Hype2. Uh, he assists our clients in transforming complex data landscapes into actionable insights. And he rolls out with a team of adept data engineers that are versed in the latest methodologies and technologies. So we are excited that Connor is going to be leading us through this discussion today. Connor, please do take wow. it away. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for the introduction. Greg, uh, super excited to be here with you. So everyone, uh, the landscape and the data AI world has been changing drastically over the last couple of years. Uh, all of a sudden we're here in 2023 talking about generative AI, uh, GPUs, transformer models, deep neural networks, reinforcement learning, chat GPT, BARD. Uh, we're seeing 70% of organizations report that they're starting to explore this uh, you know, technology, large language models, generative AI. So Greg, why don't I turn it over to you and give us a little bit of an overview and a background of kind of like where we came from and uh, the technology powering um, this. 
Sure. And to start it off, uh, artificial intelligence is something that's been in mainstream for decades. So this is nothing new. I think what it will help people to set the context is just how this new world of generative artificial intelligence came to be and, and what does it actually mean? Um, so to, to give us a little uh, context, uh, I'll share one visual. If anyone's listening along, I'll explain this. It's a, a little bit of a Venn diagram. And the idea is artificial intelligence is a catch-all that means a lot of different things uh, to a lot of different people. So, so let's just dig into it. So, so AI, essentially think of it as uh, computer science mixed with large uh, data models, large training sets, if you will. So there's uh, machine learning would be a subset of artificial intelligence. And within that, there's all kinds of different disciplines, supervised learning, reinforcement learning, unsupervised learning, neural networks, deep learning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The difference in, in what had changed uh, to make a lot of these new generative uh, AI models really, really impactful in a uh, paper in 2017 put out by some Google researchers uh, was called Attention is Everything. And that paper outlined this idea of a, a transformer-based language model. And to, to not go into the computer science details, what essentially that means is in different sentences, different dialects, different language, you pay attention to different parts of the sentence. Um, and in, in our uh, brains, it's very easy to do. We, we know the difference of context. For a machine, that's very difficult. So this uh, transformer model really was a, a new discipline within uh, natural language processing that matured from 2017 to now. And the big breakthrough uh, was this company OpenAI who had uh, developed this um, uh, model they called a generative pre-trained uh, transformer, GPT. They had GPT-1 and 2 and 3. When they got to uh, GPT-3.5, that's when the scale started to tip and the output was uncanny. You, you could not tell it apart from a human and then as they put that technology into a chat interface and released it to the world as a, a product named as ChatGPT, now all of a sudden anyone can log into a website uh, and, and interact with this system. That was extremely powerful and it demonstrated the power of this new generative AI technology instantly. So, so that is the world we are in now. Uh, and at the end of the day, it is a bunch of numbers that are statistic weights to say if, if um, you know, the blank is a German shepherd, the blank, the AI model knows that it's a high likelihood it's a dog. Um, so there's a lot more complexity below that, but, but just to demystify it, computers talk in numbers. These large transformer models are all about um, having language easily interpreted. So hope, hope that helps a little bit to, to set some context. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Greg. I think that's a, a great background and overview. So why don't we work kind of backwards um, now that we kind of have like some context of kind of how we got here. 
why don't you go into some of the recent engagements you've been working on? What are, what are, what are some of the problems you're helping clients solve right now across some different industries? So generative AI is a big bucket of a lot of things. Uh, the, the area that we're focused on is this large language model. As the language uh, points out, it is all about communication. Uh, could be communication between humans. It could be communication between uh, computers and humans. So you see like these co-pilots of coding, et cetera. But, but the holistic area is these are things that have to do with interactions between humans and humans and computers. So where we see a large area of focus are uh, it's, it's really dependent on what kind of company it is. Uh, but we'll give a few examples. Uh, we've got some legal use cases where we're helping the business teams uh, essentially look at their contract, review them faster to help what before was a very manual process uh, to, to get them to go faster. We're working with some organizations on the marketing side where we're, we're taking uh, customer data, um, the demographic data, and having that power a generative AI platform to send personalized content to those customers to, you know, increase engagement, uh, maybe upsell or cross-sell uh, awareness. So there's there's a lot of different aspects of generative AI that are being adopted very very quickly, um, and, and just based on the risk tolerance of the company is is how forward you push those, or or maybe how much you have a human in the loop type of approach. Absolutely. So kind of on that note, Greg, let's say um, I represent one of these firms that's looking to explore, uh, you know, adopting generative AI or LMs and kind of, you know, the power to, you know, tap into my customers or accelerate customer service or, you know, tap into my sales. What are some of the first critical steps I should be considering uh, to get started? I think the first piece is understanding what type of company you are and your risk tolerance. So what we've seen is that uh, the two sides of the spectrum, the, the very new startup to a very mature uh, global Fortune 500 company, there's different risk tolerances. The startup is uh, brand new. They're, they're building something from scratch. They can take more risks on how much uh, automation they push to the AI systems uh, versus how much they have a human in the loop. So with some of our startup clients, they want to build products that are disrupting the marketplace. So they are very uh, heavily leaning in, into all of the different applications of generative AI to make their people more um, uh, empowered, make them more efficient, uh, take people out of the loop completely with, with total automation, which is probably the extreme. If we look to the other side of the spectrum, uh, the large enterprise clients, they have large customer bases that have been developed over decades, uh, if not longer. and you can't just disrupt your whole entire business model overnight. You have to really take a hard look at where are the areas that we could use this technology to empower our customers, but we're also not, you know, potentially going to damage the reputation of the company by, you know, one AI chatbot saying uh, something kind of strange that is then internalized and sent to X and all the news feeds uh, to have a lot of, poor reputational damage. So there's a different risk tolerance for those organizations. And that really determines how you start the process of deploying an application. 
in the large enterprise, most times we see a human in the loop type of uh, use case where it's a, a knowledge base, ingest all of the different information of an enterprise into one corpus of data and allow that customer service agent, that uh, sales professional, that uh, operations person, the ability to ask those questions on the fly and get those answers back uh, and then have sources and links so they can then verify those. So that's that's maybe a typical in the enterprise and the startup it's it's kind of all over the board right and i think right you would probably agree with this too right you would you would say that you know businesses shouldn't really change their core competencies right those don't change they stick to their guns and they're really trying to focus on what are the business problems they're trying to solve that's 100 correct and i will make a, a comparison to maybe the the dot-com age where you had all of these companies that spun up and say hey we're we're an internet company uh, you know, we're petfood.com uh, and, and we have a website and it's it's this unique thing. Uh, and the problem was, is that a lot of those companies experienced the bust of the dot-com era because, you know, petfood.com, at the end of the day, they didn't have the infrastructure that a PetSmart had that had the merchandising, the inventory, all the supplies of being a, you know, pet's first business. And that's what led the model to fail. In the world of generative AI, you shouldn't think of it as we're a generative AI company. It's how do we take this very powerful technology, use it to improve our operations, uh, power customer acquisition, um, you know, decrease risk. You, you need the technology to help the business processes, not just look at this shiny new tool. It's going to solve all of our problems. Absolutely. I want to go back and touch on uh, something you were just mentioning in the previous question, Greg, the human in the loop uh, item. Could you go back and just kind of touch on that in detail, right? I think, you know, with generative AI <clears throat> chatbots, right? I think people were looking out, you know, is this going to take my job, right? So can you kind of touch on, um, you know, what, what does that mean, human in the loop and, you know, versus something that's fully autonomous and deployed in production? Great question. And today, the way we think about it is a large language model is almost like a, um, a genius who is 16 years old in high school, but they have all of this book smart. They, they have the entire internet in their head, if you will, but they lack the experience and the know-how to apply that um, uh, without, you know, maybe some lacking some emotional intelligence. And so LLMs are very similar in the fact that there's a lot of data. They're very smart, but uh, they could make an answer that sounds like it's the right answer, but it's not. It's you know, what's commonly referred to as a hallucination. So there's a lot of different ways to mitigate the risks of something sounding like the right answer not being factual. Uh, and, and that's a major concern for a lot of different organizations. So there's multiple ways to put that human in a loop to fact check that. Um, in the creative space, in the marketing, in the content creation, um, you, you're not always dealing in the factual side. So you have a, a little more leeway to, um, you know, I don't want to say bend the truth, but, but use that in a creative way. In the finance world, you, you cannot guess on the numbers. So having the human in the loop, whether it's um, we ask the system a question to retrieve, how many customers did we have uh, acquire yesterday? And if it goes and says, hey, it was, it was 100, that's great. Where is the data behind that so I can fact check it? That, that's one example of the human loop. 
Same thing with these knowledge bases. If a company is saying, hey, I, I want my contact center people that if they're fielding calls from the field technicians and the field technician says, I need to know what is the torque rating on this bolt, on this Allison transmission for this model of uh, you know, vehicle, they need to be able to ask that question, get the answer back, but then have the specification mo uh, manual they can click on to then verify, oh yes, that is correct. It didn't hallucinate that. Over time, uh, these models will get better, but right now in the infancy, it's, it's really important to have that fact checking aspect. Absolutely. Um, and another use case that I find interesting where I think it's that human, the, human in the loop use case is kind of when it comes to code generation. Uh, are you seeing organizations adopt uh, these technologies to write their own uh, software code? And that's probably also a use case, right, where, you know, you might have a tenured software engineer who might be able to create better prompts and get more out of the tool than perhaps a junior engineer who just graduated. Yeah, uh, code creation is a huge one. I mean, uh, GitHub's Copilot has had a ton of interaction and our engineers use it and a lot of software companies engineers use it. It's great for, I need to do uh, something, give me this function, write it in Python, go. Uh, not so great at architect this whole entire application. So again, just in the infancy of where we are, there's a lot of aspects that it can help the productivity of making uh, maybe someone with two years experience, make them as fast as someone with five year experience, but it can't necessarily take that person with two years of coding experience and make them architect things the way that same person with seven or 10 years of architecture experience could have. So there's still a, a big place for, for the, the intelligence of the human race, thank gosh. But there's a lot of areas where we can be, uh, have our productivity increase dramatically. Right. And so kind of going into that, I think, uh, you know, as organizations are looking to adopt this technology, they're surely going to face some hurdles kind of which we've, we would kind of touch on. I'm going to kind of go back and touch on how organizations can kind of plan for that and overcome those challenges. Those challenges being primarily around security and compliance. Um, this being the big hairy bad thing. Where's my data going? Uh, where, where, where's my data going when I, when I use this technology and what risk does that open my organization up to? And then the other one being kind of, how do I procure my data? Where do I, you know, get my data for my use case? Do they kind of integrate into an LLM or, you know, one of these use cases? Security and compliance is everything. Uh, PCI, HIPAA, all uh, those GDPR, those regulations aren't changing. And it, it's bringing a whole new challenge is that you have uh, the, the open AIs, the Microsofts, the AWSs, the coheres, uh, the hugging faces, they all have these technologies out there that you could consume off the shelf. Doesn't mean you should. So just like any data security practice, uh, it, you have to be very delicate about how you handle certain information. So uh, a couple of interesting things, like for example, Procter & Gamble has a very interesting tagline. They said with you know ChatGPT, you can ask, but don't tell. You can ask for certain things, but you're, you're not going to tell them, here's all of my secret enterprise data. Uh, please do analysis for me. Well, what we're seeing a shift to, and, and a lot of the clients we deal with are what we would uh, consider compliance-sensitive uh, organizations, which, again, back to that reputational risk, uh, and just they, they can't take that by using some model where they're sending data to. So we've had a lot of customers uh, ask for us to create 
a customer hosted model. So instead of uh, having the data and bringing it to the app, they, they have the data and they bring the app to the data. So that's what we've seen uh, explode. A lot of large enterprise clients are already building their own large language models that uh, fit the corporate governance models and maybe the, the brand and the language of the company so that they're, they're really powerful solutions because they can check off the security and compliance guidelines. They're deployed within their own environment. Uh, they can train it, monitor it over time, but there's a trade-off. There's, there's cost associated to that. You have to have the infrastructure, the GPUs, the compute to run those. So while you have an uptick in security and compliance, you have an uptick in cost. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things to consider and, and everyone's learning very, very quickly. You know, AI ethics is a big conversation now, responsible use. All of these things are, are combining to make for some, some really uh, tricky situations as, as the chat in, included, you know, AI governance for uh, government side. How, how are they going to put in rules and for Europe and the US? So it's, it's going to be a very interesting landscape in the next 12 months. Thank, that, thanks, Greg. Love that. And then just kind of want to touch on something you just said. Uh, as organizations are kind of looking at to adopt this technology, how are you seeing them kind of, and, and you mentioned the cost, right? So I think we see a lot of, a lot of clients, a lot of organizations going out there. Oh, I want to build my own LLM, right? I want to build my own LLM from scratch, right? So like there really is a pretty exponentially, you know, vast difference between kind of doing one of these things from scratch right? Versus kind of taking something off the market, you know, feeding your own data via API versus taking something off the shelf, right? So there's, you know, there's a wide array of solutions out there for, you know, a wide array of, you know, companies with different budgets and different security concerns. There are. And a lot of the uh, focus we've seen is organizations trying to reduce the hallucinations where, they, they can't afford to have the wrong information pushed back. Um, and you'll, you'll see a lot of people talk about uh, vector databases, things like Pinecone and Chroma and Elastic and Mongo. There's, there's a lot of different organizations that are providing these type of technologies. And essentially, uh, it's powering this application set called Retrieval Augmented Generation, where the large language model that's trained off of all the corpus of data uh, of the internet. It's a very wide array of types of communication. And uh, some of them are uh, what they call a frozen model. So that, you know, ChatGPT is, was trained up to 2021. So it couldn't answer questions after that. They have plugins. Now I could go search the internet here or there. A lot, a lot of what we see is these organizations that say, I only want you to answer the data that lives in this corpus of data everything else ignore. So if someone asks a question that's totally off the wall, uh, don't answer it. it. It is only within these things that mostly are stored within vector databases to try to, to really take this general purpose gen AI and make it specific to their use cases. All right, and that's what we're probably seeing the most of. And then kind of on that note, right? So let's pretend, you know, I'm in a, a, a seat at an organization where I need to, I want to pursue this technology, right? How, how do you, how are you seeing your clients, you know, put together the pitch, the story to get this investment, get the budget to go forth with like a development effort to, you know, pursue an MVP perhaps, or an experimental uh, engagement with this technology? 
And uh, so, so today I'm actually at a, a CDO summit and it's interesting. One of the panelists, I think, capsulated like perfectly where um, the, the, the matrix or the lens of what these chief data officers and chief information officers see the world is what are the priorities the business put in front of us? Because if, if the technology doesn't align to that, it's, it's dead in the water. So the, the first point is what are the highest strategic business initiatives to those organizations? And then taking that, what uh, technologies with generative AI can help automate, can help increase the productivity, whether that's customer acquisition, whether it's improving operations, um, uh, all, all types of different areas. It's what are the business strategies? What are the technologies that could solve the business strategy? And what we see personally is that um, sometimes a minimum viable product in the full sense of a you know, full development path to get something out the market to address one of these initiatives, it could take a long time. So we've uh, actually seen, and, and we kind of stole this term from one of our customers, is that minimum viable experiments, where it's if this initiative is going to use this technology, this piece of the tech has to work. Let's go test that. Test it at a small scale. If it works, great. And then let's go to the MVP and then to a full production build. So the the proverbial dip in the toe in the water is is really what we're seeing with all of our clients, where they they want these technologies, but they don't want to take a big swing and a miss. They they want to test and make little different bets across those business initiatives, see which one has the highest feasibility and highest potential for scale. Once we prove out the, the tech, then invest to make it a full-born uh, production application. All the while, you are bringing the business partners along with you and saying, if we were to do this, it could result in X amount of efficiencies. It could uh, result in X amount of new customers, which would represent X amount of millions of dollars of new revenue. It's, it's the, the metric of decisioning and prioritization has to be rooted and what are the measurable dollars that can come back to the business? Right. So it's going to be a priority for those CDOs and those business leaders to drive change with, with that messaging. Um, so what I'd like to kind of get into next off of that is kind of two parts is kind of use cases and then culture adoption. So first going into use cases, right? So are, are, you, are you finding that there are a standard set of procedures or methodology to do discovery on these use cases when you go into a new client site or, a, you know, you have a new CDO that's like, hey, I want to do one of these MBEs. Um, I want to test out this technology and see if it'll work for us. Um, how are you approaching, you know, that discovery aspect to, you know, find out what that use case might be? Yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot. Uh, and I think demystifying the education portion really helps with business stakeholders and the technical stakeholders with our experts to come in and say, this is, this is what generative I re really can do. Uh, you know, let's not talk about hype cycle. Let, let's just talk about what's on the truck today. And then let's talk about how, if you don't do this, uh, your competitors could and take a sniff amount of market share. So it's just a, let, let's sit in the opportunity and the challenge for a minute to, to think through how can we apply technologies to improve our business. And so the discovery portion really is 80% on the business side. Um, and then the rest of it is, okay, if, if these things can be true, what hypotheses do we have to have to, to test 
in order to, to loop back to that. So if, if you looked at an output document from a lot of our engagements, a lot of it is where's the business going? And then what are some of the, the things you have today from a technology stack? So we, we don't have to recreate the wheel on a bunch of the items you've already built and then try to marry those two. Okay, hey, you've, you've made investment in this you know, amazing customer data platform. We have all the customer data. It's a your customer 360. We can use that data asset to power uh, a large language model to uh, you know, engage with them better. That, that's an example. So it's, it's all about what's the quick time to value and, and thinking really intentionally about what you can get done in four to six weeks, not four to six months. We, you got you to gotta move fast. Um, we have a saying, and it's, it's, it's basically the fact that we are experts in the making. Yes, my team has 15 years of experience working with data science and machine learning algorithms, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is anyone that says they've been working with generative AI for five or 10 years, that's just not, that's not accurate. So the trick becomes, let's all be adults in the room and, and lean forward and say, this is new. This is different. The best way that we're going to learn is from experience. So how do we get the, the runtime and the experience to just get started hands on keyboard? And from there, we see all the learnings happening. Because anyone can connect to OpenAI, uh, their API, and build a chatbot. That, that's not the hard part. It's how do you improve the accuracy and reliability? How do you do role-based access control to make sure only the right people can see the right data? How do you have your prompt engineering so that the application is not getting customers confused? There's a lot of detail and nuance that you don't learn unless you do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on that note, I kind of wanted to get into like, so when organizations are looking to adopt this, are they, this technology is changing so fast, right? So that's one reason to get into it, right? It, we're constantly seeing, you know, new advancements being pushed, new models that released to the market. It, it almost seems like on a weekly basis, right? So it almost seems like, hey, you don't want to get left behind if I don't adopt it now. But to that point, yep. uh, can I run before I walk with this stuff, right? Like, let's say I'm, I'm still a shop that's doing my reporting in Excel. <laughs> Right? And doing a lot of, you know, I'm not even using the modern BI tools to kind of, you know, guide my data driven decision making, right? Like, can I start to adopt this technology or do I need to take a traditional path first? Uh, I think you're going to be forced to adopt it if you like it or not. Um, it, it just to kind of give uh, Kali put a, put a question there about the Microsoft Copilot. Um, so an interesting, uh, so, so Google and their Duet product or the, the co-pilots being introduced to Outlook and PowerPoint and Excel. I think an Office 365 license is maybe at an enterprise $15 per user per month. The co-pilot is $25, just the add-on. You get the whole application stack. The add-on of the generative AI on top of that is more than double the price. So you'll see a lot of these product companies that you interact with uh, on a daily basis, uh, Adobe, um, Microsoft, Google, uh, ServiceNow, all these different organizations, they're going to be bolting on generative AI to in improve the usability of the product uh, and, and capture market share. So there's, there's little ways that you're going to experiment with you like it or not uh, within other application stacks. So we think about the enterprise core data, the, the key thing to remember is you have to manage it in a way that 
you're you're getting added value for that build versus buy. And I don't know if there is a way to run before you walk. I think with a lot of organizations, you're going to have to walk uh, and, and do it in a framework that is aligned across the compliance uh, from, uh, you know, all of these different risk organizations. And it, it, you have to be very intentional because you don't want to make a mistake, not, not in this arena. Um, so it's a, a tremendous opportunity, but a, a tremendous a challenge as well. And then kind of, you just touched on uh, two products there. I know we don't want to go too deep into the tools, but you know, the, with Microsoft releasing its own product offering, you have Google, Microsoft chat, uh, Bard, Dolly, right? You know, I'm looking to get started with this. Do I get focused on, you know, aligning with an organization and, and their tool set? Or do I really stick to my capabilities and my challenge and really try to find the right tool for the job? That's a great question. Every organization should be a little bit different. Um, again, if we go to that, uh, ask, but don't tell type of mentality, we've internally, we use, um, a lot of kind of GitHub copilot for, um, you know, creation of code. We do a lot of Python in our organization. Um, internally we built a product that takes a transactional database schema and you can plug into an LLM and it will put out. Uh, an OLAP or an analytic model and it'll do the table creations and the joins and it, it saved our engineers about 60% of the time, 70% of the time on, on simple models. Now, is it perfect? Is it not? Um, you still have to do a lot of information on the back end, but it, it gets rid of that cold start problem or, oh my gosh, I have to code this whole project or, oh my gosh, I have to write this whole email or I got to create this statement of work or I have to you know, look through this whole contract a lot of these new technologies are making that faster. So the, it all comes down to the use case and, and what you're trying to accomplish uh, to, to help you pick, you know, what are the right tool sets? Do I use something that's off the shelf to, have to build something? It, it's, it's hard for me to give like a, a one uh, silver bullet answer on that one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, want to go back to just kind of the data thing, the data sharing thing, because I see Cal Cali raising a concern in the chat, you know, organizations interested in, you know, adopting the stuff, but they're nervous about sharing their data, right? So I think, you know, we're going to see that probably being at the forefront of, you know, clients looking to adopt this stuff. How do I keep my data in-house? So I mentioned we have uh, a lot of uh, essentially customer-hosted large language models. Uh, so there was a big development. This was, I guess, four to six weeks ago where uh, Meta, Facebook, released what they call their model llama two, which the commercial contract or commercial terms for that was very favorable where you could take that as an open source model and build your own LLMs that you could host um, in your public cloud environments, your private cloud environments. Um, some of them even ran it on a MacBook if, if the parameter count was low enough. So they're, there's a lot of open source uh, tools and platforms out there that you can run the model within your environment. So that's majority of where we spend our time is those uh, customer hosted large language models. But that's only the beginning uh, because there's a lot of operational efficiencies you have to have. Uh, the model needs to be updated sometimes or 
the security controls of, of who can access that model. Uh, a lot of our customers use different models. So they might have, uh, you know, chat GP, you know, open AI for one aspect and then a private for another. So there's, there's a lot of complexity about you owning and running your own models, but then you get a lot of, uh, of the benefit of security compliance and you're not sending data outside your four walls. So the, a critical thing I want to mention is with generative AI, essentially the cost to create content, create that next message, create that, uh, you know, poem in the tone of Snoop Dogg about whatever, like that, that has become ubiquitous. Anybody can go to a website, type that in and get it instantly. What now needs to happen is the personalization of that content, right? And that's where your enterprise proprietary data is incredibly important because you can actually use machine learning um, methodologies to, to basically increase the accuracy of that personalized content that's generated from generative AI. And you could create things at a speed that is dizzying and it's personalized. That, that is the first time that's happened. Two, four, five years ago, that, that was not possible. So I think companies really need to think about that as a strategic differentiator. How do I use the data assets I have in-house and I've had in-house for a long time to then bolt on these new generative AI technologies to, again, increase my enterprise value. Absolutely. And so just kind of touching on the last point, data, data assets, right? Data is the new gold is what we're kind of hearing. When we look at this technology, I mean, are we generally, are we looking at, you would say cost reduction opportunities, right? Wait, or I can find it. I'm going to, this is going to be expensive. It's going to take a lot of investment, but over the long run, I'm going to bring efficiency gains, quicker time to market, more insight to my customers, but it's going to cost me. Or are you seeing there's organizations out there that are pursuing this in the attempts to generate more revenue with their data? I think just in the macroeconomic climate, uh, it's a lot of austerity measures. So it's how can you remove costs from the business using a technology? Um, it's easier to scale that way. The, the trouble is I, I, don't, I don't always see that holding true in some of the projects. So mm -hmm. it's from what, where our vantage point is, the project we've delivered, it's making the human five to 10x more efficient. So if you had a team of 10, they can now do what a team of 50 could do before or hundred uh, based on the task. So it's, it's more of, it's a cost savings or cost avoidance, I would call it. Not necessarily this AI platform is going to replace all of our customer service or this AI platform is going to reduce all of our marketing costs and, and, and people. It's, we've all, you know, since COVID, we've all been doing more with less to me, this is just the next evolution of making people way more efficient and automating some systems. Don't get me wrong, um, but you know, to 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 really put it out there, it's 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 going to bring the next level of productivity gain that we haven't seen in a long time. Absolutely, and then kind of, who do you think's in trouble with with this technology coming? I mean, that might be a nefarious question. But do you see this technology come in and replace traditional BI or, you know, traditional other technology solutions? Or do you really see a lot of, you know, this just stuff being adopted widely um, and augmenting our traditional experiences? If, if I look at traditional data science projects going back 15 years, maybe longer, it was very, I'll call it narrow AI. I'm going to work on a... Uh, you know, FP&A forecasting on our cost structure for our supply chain, our materials. Okay, let's let's look at our steel 
that we bought from these eight suppliers for the last seven years. Look at the market rate, the commodity rate of steel. Okay, we're going to have some you know future predictors, um, and then we're going to put a model in that's going to forecast out what those costs of that good will be, so we can better predict our revenues, our uh, you know what our pricing to our customer needs to be. It, it was a way for a very narrow aspect of data science, use case specific, work on that project, deliver that project, go to the next one. That's been the typical data science uh, workflow for, for a while in most organizations we saw. With generative AI, it, it now becomes a uh, more general purpose. It, it's, it's not a narrow use case, it's, it's a pretty wide one. And that's unlocking a ton of opportunities that before you had to have uh, either a special technology or a group of people to deliver. Now out of the box, you get it instantly. So the, the people we see it disrupting is if you were a software company that built your whole intellectual proper on intellectual property on how you did natural language processing better than the next person, this is this is a problem for you. Um, if, if you had a, a sentiment analysis tool that took in all these call center calls and can tell you to the nth degree that, you know, this is positive or negative, some of these technologies do that out of the box. Now, could it replace everything those software companies do? No, but it's hard to defend the, the higher price tags if that, that AI technology is now ubiquitous. Um, so it's a huge opportunity to democratize that, that capability. But it's also, you know, for other companies, if that's a big revenue generator, that it is a risk. And I, I like what you said there, democratizing this technology. I think what, for me, what's been powerful with, with this kind of coming to the forefront is that I myself can go out and get a $20 chat GPT subscription. And this is now like a count. It's like a calculator, right? Um, I, I use this every, I use this every day. Uh, you know, when I'm on a call, I ask a, a live question about maybe a topic I might not know a lot about to generating content, like you said, from proposals to emails. Um, would you agree with that? Is that kind of like the, the game changer here is that now the, the average citizen has this at their fingertips and you know, how are you using this just in kind of your personal life, right? Work in personal, just but how's Greg Burke using it? Um, so I use uh, ChatGPT a lot. I, I have a plus membership. So I, I do use that a bunch to summarize things. Um, we build, little apps. I have an app we built in Streamlit that does, um, essentially it will give summarizations of publicly traded companies, 10Ks, 10Qs, their transcripts from their uh, corporate earnings. And I use that for my research. I do a lot of research before I meet with clients so that I can understand what are their initiatives, uh, maybe what are some of their competitors' initiatives. Um, and so I use it to be prepared and do a lot of the prep work for me. So I'm handed off a nice clean uh, slate. Uh, I use it personally. I'll connect it to my calendar and it'll write a summary email to my wife every Sunday. <laughs> so she knows what we have going on with all the kids going different things. So there's, there's a lot of ways I use it personally and professionally. Um, I, I do want to, uh, Chris Williams had a question in there about data quality and this mm -hmm. literally just hit us uh last week so we were building this um this email marketing tool for for one of our clients and uh they wanted a very specific type of format in their corporate language and it's a 
it's a multi-tenant because they have subsidiaries, but I won't get into complexities. One of the aspects they were using is there was this uh, tool that was feeding insights to the LLM in order to create the content for this marketing message. Well, what we realized in the testing is that that specific tool to provide the insights was, was very poor. It wasn't working the way it should have. So we built this amazing language model that was super specific for what they were trying to do. We, we built this application to chain all these different events together. So it did an intelligent way. But at the end of the day, when we got to the finished product, the data that was being put to, to make this happen was not working at all. So data quality is incredibly important in the world of AI. It always has been, and it will continue to be. So that would be another uh, uh, you know, grading criteria for new use cases is how clean is that data to, to really make sure that it has the highest likelihood of accuracy uh, and relevancy. Awesome. Thanks, Greg. And just one more question out there from Kali. Uh, Greg, what are your thoughts on using OpenAI inside Azure? Uh, oops, it's moving around on me. Chat's going, what are your thoughts? Where to go? Yeah. I saw to the oh, okay. question around. Yeah. Yeah. OpenAI within Azure, uh, it is SOC 2 compliant. There are certain things that it has a higher compliance threshold. Um, the model is very, very large and very robust. So it's super powerful. Um, we have seen a lot of different results from a 3.5 turbo to four. Uh, so that's probably a different conversation. What I would say is the devil's in the details of the contract. Um, from the last contract that we looked at from the uh, Azure OpenAI, there was still some aspect that says all tokens, so all the content that you send to Azure is stored for a period of time only for logging and compliance uh, purposes. It's not used for the training. It's not used for any of the improvement of the model, but, but they do capture it. So it depends on, uh, is that a risk you're willing to take? You know, chances are they, they could never use your data um, in the model, but if, if Azure got hacked, you know, probably the likelihood, would those log pieces be sitting somewhere? Could they reverse engineer to, to learn something about your enterprise? Uh, a lot of our customers, that's what we suggest is to start, especially in POCs, is let's look at a low compliance type of use case. Let's use Azure OpenAI because we don't have to set anything up. We don't have to deploy the model in your infrastructure and do all this technical um, debt. So we do tell people to, to start with, um, you know, specifically Azure OpenAI. And then, you know, from there, you can really decide on based on the use case, do I need to bring this in house or, or, or keep it in a hosted model? And uh, was that something that, that's changed recently, right, Greg, was, uh, you know, Azure's OpenAI offering? This is something you've just recently been pushing customers to? Um, no, I would say for... It's just, it's way easier to do that route. But again, a lot of our clients, financial services, healthcare, no, they're not, they're not doing that. Uh, and the MSA terms that they'd want Microsoft or AWS or fill in the blank to agree to, they would never agree to it anyway. So it's like, let's not waste all that time in legal and procurement. Let's just figure out how we can make this more approachable. Right. I want to take my own data, you know, and tap into using OpenAI. How much data do I need to make it meaningful, right? Like, I need more than one or two tables, right? I mean, uh, wow, what, are, what what kind of volumes are we talking about here? 
I want to augment, you know, one of those existing models out there. Yeah. Uh, so in the world, so there's the, the fine tuning, uh, PEFT and Cora and all these things that, uh, my chief technology officer could speak much more intelligently about. Um, but, but those are this, this fine tuning of how do you change the weights of the model to reflect, uh, my specific use case, whether that's my corporate tone, whether it's, I only want them to answer questions, these types of ways. Um, that is an option. We don't necessarily push people towards that at the beginning because it's cost prohibitive. Um, there's also a lot of operational, um, just rigor that comes with the fine tuning model because you have to constantly update it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but for some customers that is, um, something they want to explore and it's, it's definitely a viable option on your question for how much data it, it really depends how wide of a general purpose, um, the application needs to have or how narrow, uh, for high performance, narrow is better for lower costs. Narrow is better. Um, but then you're back to that old data science model where it's, it's just this use case, you know, this is what's for nothing else. So you lose that applicability of multiple different use cases with one set of infrastructure. So there's a lot of trade-offs in this world. And the hard part is everyone's learning on the fly. Um, a lot of what we do too is cost analysis. If you run X or Y, how many tokens does that send? What's the you know estimated consumption of this application? Because the worst thing you can get is something that everyone loves, but it all of a sudden starts to run out of control and cost you millions and millions of dollars and you're not getting the same return. So a lot of this is the, the cost um, pieces is just to make sure that's a big part of the equation. Absolutely, absolutely. And then Kalia, do we want to open it up for uh, questions to the audience here? Yeah, yeah, we have about um, 10 minutes left of the session. So if anybody has a question, this is a fantastic time um, to bring it up. I know that we did get one uh, that came in while you were talking from Mike that said, should organizations stand up experimentation labs to learn as the MVEs are explored? That's what we see a lot of. Um, I like the word lab because it's a, it's a safe word for uh, science. And, and we do, uh, so, so data science is, I, I never liked the word science because it, it, um, it, it doesn't always instill, okay, what, what direction? We're just testing things to test things. Like there, there's a lot of that experimentation inherently in the, the, that world. So the lab part is nice for me, but I think the hypothesis of how this solves a business problem, that's the table stakes. Like that has to happen first. Um, and then you wanna set up a, an environment that multiple teams can leverage. So you don't get these, shadow IT or these multiple instances of all these different things, your costs are starting to balloon, there's no governance around it. So that's why I like the idea of uh, a framework or a lab to people that are interested in leveraging technology to build it in-house, there's, there's a safe space to, to engage. Um, and, and that's what we try to advocate for is let's, let's, let's set the rules of the game first before we start to play. Mm -hmm. Nice. And then, uh, and then and one thing I wanted to get out of you, Greg, was, you know, just to make this more tangible for folks on the call, 
you know, I'm looking to adopt this LM technology, uh, these chatbots. Do I need to, you know, at my, in my organization, do I need to pursue developing my own application, my own custom piece of software to act as an interface, a GUI, if you will, to interact with the software? Or are you seeing you know, there's options out of the box for that? A uh, little bit of both. Uh, I would say the front end user interface is always a big part of these projects. Um, a lot of the ones you'll see on demos are, are pretty simplistic chat bots, yeah. uh, which, which can be fine. Mm -hmm. And then on others, uh, the more visual side, the multimodalities where you have video and image, then there's a whole nother type of UI, uh, you know, is the mid journey and discord or, you know, Dolly two, et cetera. Um, but, but the user interface is critical. Like you, you can't have a beautiful solution that does something so amazing but it's really hard to use. So that is a challenge that we see is how do you take these new technologies and then embed them in, in applications and workflows that have existed for years. That, that is another problem set that we see a lot. But for the initial experimentation, like whatever you can get it up and running fast. Uh, so we use Streamlit, we use a product called Gradio. Um, yeah, we've even presented some Jupyter notebooks to customers just to see. So there's lots of different ways to present the initial findings, but at the end of the day, there has to be user interface, uh, user experience that is delightful. Otherwise no one's going to use it. Right. I mean, we know the technology behind the scenes is it's black magic. It's incredibly complex, right? But for that user, that needs to be a simple experience, right? A simple stream, a streamlined experience. Um, that's, that's the beauty behind all, all this technology because that's been my experience uh, so far. Um, yeah, kind of want to touch into, you know, I think, you know, fostering that culture for AI adoption. I think education is going to be for, you know, at the forefront. Um, are there any resources you'd recommend or any community-based forums uh, that you would direct people to, to help learn and, you know, learn more about this stuff? Yeah. Um, Hugging Face is a, a very interesting uh, platform, more technical in nature, but there's uh, models they have, there's training data sets, there's, there's some form as well. So a lot of our engineers spend a lot of time on Huggy Space. We, we have our own little space where our demo apps live. Um, that's one. Um, the Deep Learning Institute, uh, and I got, I'll have to find a link. I, well, we can provide that in the, in the show notes. Um, they have free trainings, mostly more technical on the developer side, uh, but it is a good way for people just to get grounded on what's real, like what's real and what's not. And they have a lot of different uh, uh, little uh, segments that are different chunks that you can consume very, very quickly. So we'll have to dig up those links. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think Kelly, we'll get those out to everybody. And obviously yeah. Stella AI and Hike2, uh, you know, won't be a stranger to reach out to us as well. Um, one question coming in from Deborah Adams in the chat here, Greg, uh, do companies average hire do they hire average Joes to test these user interfaces in these products, I'd say, or do you need a pretty high level? Is there a high learning curve here? You know, kind of where do you need to be in your data journey to test this stuff? Yeah, it, it depends on the application. Like for the email marketing app, we had uh, a bunch of salespeople that were testing it. Uh, so do call them average Joes, call them whatever you will. Um, for another application, it was very specific to a technical specification in a manufacturing line. 
and we needed some subject matter experts from the engineering team to, to bless those results. So I would say uh, if, if we're testing the result, it's a very specific skill set or not specific skill set. If it's just the UI, um, if it's a consumer app, then yes, we, we would say it's, it's anyone should be able to use it, pick it up and go. Um, I just downloaded this app. I'm super curious how it's going to be. It's called Augment. Uh, we can leave that in the show notes as well. But it's it's summarization. It's it's email. It's it's like a multi-platform. And it's it's a really nice UI. Um, so yeah, it's it's amazing how many AI apps are are coming out oh, every single day. I have one that does PowerPoints for me. <laughs> What, uh, what are your thoughts on another one coming in from Kali? Uh, what are your thoughts on enterprise, the new enterprise being chat versus uh, chat GPT? Um, do, you, what do, you see, do you see any value with that uh, uh, Bing chat solution? Or versus Claude or Bard? Yeah, it, some, yeah. Some, and I, some. I think we could debate like what models are better for what, and everyone's going to have a preference. I actually think Bard is pretty good. Um, I like it too because they have links to content. And you can also ask to Google it. So Google's a massive company. Um, but sometimes the result set is not as, uh, it just doesn't seem as good as what a chat GPT-4 has delivered. Um, but, you know, Claude versus uh, Llama versus chat, it, it's, it's so hard if it's very general purpose. Now, if you could put benchmarks and say which one can pass the bar, or you know which one could accurately identify or, or do a, a very complex math problem. There's also power in um, these advanced technologies that you know companies like Langchain or open source platform. You can do prompt engineering to improve the results. So that's the other secret sauce. It's one's the model, but it's also the prompt engineering how you improve those results and. That could be probably five more sessions we could do. I was uh, just going to say, I feel like we're kind of running short on time, but we didn't even touch prompt engineering today. And that's probably a whole nother rabbit hole uh, we could go down in terms of how you get the most yeah. out of these goals when you're interacting with them. That'll be our next talk, guys. You got to <laughs> do it. Got to do it. Prompt engineers are everywhere. Are. Um, well, that, that really brings us to time. This has been a fantastic conversation, gentlemen. Con uh, Connor, I, I love you jumping in here. You've done a fantastic job as another moderator from the great data minds slash IQ side of the house. And Greg, you're doing a fantastic job of breaking down these big concepts into the, like manageable and bite-sized things that you've got a manner of speaking that just really makes it relatable and understandable. And I, I always appreciate uh, when I meet a technologist of your caliber who is able to do that for a non-technologist of mine. So thank you. Um, this has been fantastic. So again, everybody, uh, we will send out a follow-up. We'll include some of those great resources that Greg has been mentioning. Um, we will put some links to some other things that we have going on. I'll include the YouTube channel where you can find the recording of this session. Um, and we thank everybody so much for spending this hour with us today. We know that your time is one of the most valuable things and you chose to share it with us. So we really see you for that. We appreciate you. And thank you, Connor and Greg, so much for this great talk. Yeah, thank you so yeah. much for having us. Thank you, Greg. If there's anything we can do to educate you all more, you know where to find us. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. Have a Thanks wonderful so day. Everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.